My name is Katie Heisen. I'm a Report for America Corps member based at WUFT News. I cover equity issues, which often means examining what's not working in our community. But for the next half hour, I'll revisit some stories to hear what's changed since I first reported them. I'll also speak with community leaders about what progress they've seen this year. Beginning in November of 2019, I spent five months reporting inside Dignity Village, what was then Alachua County's largest homeless tent camp, as local officials prepared to shut it down. That's our top story tonight. I'm Henry Coburn. Both the county and the city will spend $1.5 million with thousands targeted for closing nearby campground known as Dignity Village. And the future of Gainesville's largest homeless camp is very much in doubt. The loss of what had been their home was a stressful time for camp residents. But the closure was also the first step in the plan to rehouse everyone that lived there. So I wanted to follow up with one of the Dignity residents I spent time with while reporting. His name is Rupert Hurd. He participated in what's called Rapid Rehousing, a program that provided temporary rent assistance while he worked to become self-sufficient. I recently paid Rupert a visit at his new place to see how he's doing. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? Good. Good, to see you. <laughs> good to see you up there. That's smile. When Rupert opens the door of his apartment, the first thing I notice is what some dignity campers used to call the post housing glow. He looks healthy and rested. He moved in in February of 2021, after about five years without housing. I ask him to give me a tour. It's our living room and dining room. And then we go out here. And I have a, a we have a screened in porch. Uh, it's really, really nice to sit out here. All matching Whirlpool appliances. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and the place, is, the place is fully furnished. Fully furnished, in this case, includes a fake orchid museum-style oil paintings, and... A little baby grand piano. <laughs> of course, I don't play, so... <laughs> All right, and then you, you go in here, and this is our kitchen. Everything works, dishwasher, even have an ice maker. Pretty cool. <laughs> I came in and I, I hugged the coffee maker. <laughs> Rupert used to make his coffee in a metal canteen on his grill, cowboy style. But now he says, Mr. Coffee does all the work. Uh -huh. He still toasts every morning to his friend Mike, a Vietnam veteran who died while living next to Rupert in the camp. Now, instead of clinking mugs, he lifts his to the sky. Here's to Gainesville and the rest of the world. Many Dignity residents used to tell me that they looked out for each other. That's why one of their biggest fears of the camp closing was losing their community. But in Rupert's case, he didn't end up alone. He was placed in housing with several others coming from Grace Marketplace 
the homeless shelter facilitating the rehousing program. We, we, we all have our own individual rooms and our own locks. Living so close together in the camp taught long-timers like Rupert how to coexist with people and handle conflict. We, if we have problems, we'll come down here and have a house meeting and we'll hash it out. Many Dignity campers were rehoused in apartments off the interstate near the mall. They still visit each other. Some shared a Thanksgiving dinner. But Rupert says life is busier now because most of them work. Uh, I've been paying my rent now for almost four months. Grace Marketplace paired each person with a caseworker to help them get adjusted. Uh, you know, it's been peaks and valleys in my transition, and so uh, I just thank goodness that they had a support staff there. She helped me get on Indeed and uh, do my job search, and I targeted this area. Getting a job near his new home was key. His only transportation, his bike, sits in the corner of his living room. I found a job right at the mall. I'm about prep cook. I love to hear that because I remember at Dignity, you were always kind of one of the camp cooks. <laughs> I was, man. <laughs> my name is pretty notorious, though, as far as what I can cook. Are there, like, little joys that people who've never been without housing might take for granted, but that felt like a big deal after you moved in? Oh, certainly. Uh... Uh, let's see, because <laughs> when it when it rained and you're in a tent, <laughs> yeah, and, and the wind blows. Rupert says the effort of transitioning into housing can feel daunting to people who've lived without it for a long time. There's times where I want to just throw in a towel, just want to say I don't want to do it anymore. I just, you know, I I just rather be, I just rather live like this for the rest of my life. And then when I transitioned into housing and I saw the possibilities, you know, I thought, wow, okay, this isn't going to be so bad. You become productive citizens and you, you're able to give back to society, you know, paying taxes now, working. And so it, it's a way to give back. The rehousing program requires hard work from the person transitioning, but they need a place to live, too. So it also requires landlords willing to rent to people coming from homelessness. Landlord has been really gracious, considering that three of us come from, from uh, Grace and um, allowing us to just be who we are. And we haven't destroyed the place. You know, the place looks still pristine. And I, I just think that you, you can't underestimate people. You can't just look at a person and say, oh, just because they came from, you know, a homeless shelter, they're going to destroy my unit. Rupert's well aware of judgments against people without housing. He's also aware most people are just one paycheck away from being homeless themselves. It's something he still thinks about. I have to pinch myself and say, you know, am I really here? that does sort of fester in the back of my mind. You know, what would happen if, if, if I lost my job or if I couldn't pay the rent, you know, what would I do? I still see people on my way to work, like live under the bridge at 75. And I always speak and say, hello, how are you guys doing today? 
And because I think it's very important for them to know that, that they're not just something that people see on the side of the road, like an insect or a bug, and think, oh, I could just pass. I don't even want to say hello to them. I don't even speak to them. They are, they're people. And they just, at this point in their life, they might be just a little bit lost. Last January, a survey found more than 500 people without housing in the county. And that was a decrease from the year before, thanks in part to the closure of Dignity Village. When the camp closed, more than 200 people were on the official list of residents. So far, nearly two-thirds have been placed in housing. That's according to Grace Marketplace director John DeCarmine. Others have left town or moved into other facilities. Only six still need housing. The holidays remind Rupert of what living in the camp felt like. There was a movie called Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, very popular Christmas movie. And there was the Island of Misfit Toys. And we looked at ourselves as the Island of Misfit People, that our, our families have just, you know, turned their back on us. It works deep on people's psychic whenever you're homeless, too, because you think, wow, you know, everybody has, has, has forgotten about me. Though it hasn't always been easy, he's proud of how much he's overcome. He's even on the advisory board of the nonprofit that coordinates medical services for Grace Marketplace. And give them a very unique perspective. I feel very proud. It's like turning a negative into a positive. But Rupert says even being formerly homeless carries a stigma, no matter how far he's come. I'm proud to say, yeah, I, 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 was, I was out at uh, Dignity Village, and, and, and sometimes people on the bus will move away from me. So there's still that stigmatism eight months later. There's some extraordinary people who just found themselves in, some, in, in very difficult situations. He's hopeful more can be done. I just wish that the, the community of Gainesville, the city council, and the, uh, the county would continue to, to reach out and help homeless people because I believe it's a problem that can eventually be eradicated. Everyone deserves a home. Recently, unhoused people in Ocala have also experienced changes in local policy. This year, after being challenged in federal court, the city repealed its laws criminalizing panhandling. Another city law that made it a crime to sleep or even rest while awake outside was ruled unconstitutional. It was one of the highlights of my year to see Rupert in a stable home. I wanted to check on another family I reported on earlier this year who said they're still hoping for a decision on where they can call home. My name is Jihad Al-Isa uh, from Syria, Aleppo. Hey, my name is Hala Alafaz from Syria, Aleppo. Jihad and his wife Hala fled political persecution in Syria. They've been waiting in Gainesville for an asylum case hearing for more than eight years, a result of the immigration backlog. The long wait has taken a toll, but it's not their whole life. They're especially proud of their family. 
One of my son uh, finishes uh, school and he find job and the second one this month he will graduate from construction management. So for us I think it's uh, mission accomplished and we are very happy for that. And Jihad has plans to start a business. We might, uh, uh, with the help of my brother, open like lighting store in Gainesville or in Tampa. This is one of our plan. He tries to keep his spirits high, despite not knowing if they'll be allowed to stay in the U.S. I think joyful and happiness, it's, uh, we, make, we can make it from our inner, you know what I mean? For Jihad and Hala, joy includes making friends and spending time with them over the holidays. We make in the Thanksgiving uh, like small uh, reunion uh, party. party and most of the people they said they are happy because they know me and uh, that make me very proud that oh that there is people who love you. So that's that's I think better than money or any as she said, paper or whatever. Heading into the new year, Jihad and Hala have no idea if or when they'll learn about their immigration status. And they're not alone. In Florida, more than 66,000 asylum seekers from all over the world are still waiting for a decision on their case. This year, I also reported on Keiko Kopp, who knows what it's like to wait for others to decide her fate. She was incarcerated at Lowell Prison in Ocala. She created news broadcasts to share what life inside the prison was like to millions on TikTok. Two months after I published that story, Keiko was transferred to Gadsden, a private prison much closer to her home in the Panhandle. I recently talked with her to see how she's doing after the transfer. Hello, this is a prepaid call from... An inmate at the Gadsden Correctional Facility. Hello? Hello. Hi, Keiko. How are you? (laughs) Good. How are you? She says now that she's closer, her family can visit every weekend. I'm just really happy that I'm able to see my children. My kids are ecstatic. My son has insisted to come stay with my mom for Christmas break so he can come see me, of course. And it's just we're all just eager for me to come home. I think that's just the best news. Everybody's happy to be closer to me. And she was surprised to find an old friend from Lowell at Gadsden. I'm very blessed because the girl I was pregnant with that was my Bunky Brown for forever is here. Very sad that she had left, but then I was blessed to come here, and I I see her every day. I've actually been working on Christmas presents for her, trying to be creative. Keiko says the little things have made all the difference for her. The phones at Gadsden don't cut out. She was issued thermals and a sweater to keep her warm, real shampoo. But she mentions big things, too. The guards are respectful. Outside educators come to teach classes. It's just so much more positive here. Despite her transfer, she's still working with others to advocate for the women at Lowell. We've had all the women here and several men's facilities that are all writing letters. They're being sent to a P.O. box. just about prison reform. Uh, I'm still making videos online speaking about what was going on at Lowell. We're not going to give up on that. My previous story about Keiko captured her during one of the most challenging times in her life. But she says she's looking ahead. A lot of times 
we don't think past these four walls. And so I really just like to plan, you know, what I want for my future and my children. I don't want to give up. Keiko is one year into a three-year sentence, the mandatory minimum for charges of drug trafficking. She's hopeful that current sentence reform efforts could help get her home sooner. As I've reported on equity issues during the pandemic, I've learned it's made some problems worse. Health disparities have grown, gaps in education have widened. So I set out to hear from community leaders to learn what they believe to be working for them this year, despite the challenges. While reporting Keiko's story, I got to know Deborah Bennett Austin. She used to be incarcerated at Lowell too. After her release in 2018, she started an organization called Change Comes Now, which advocates for incarcerated women in Florida. Everyone on the board is formerly incarcerated and work to change the system they experienced. So we all feel that if everybody keeps coming home and just fretting over the things that they saw for like the first couple of days and then forget about it, it's going to continue to happen. They filed to become a registered nonprofit in February of 2020, right before the pandemic hit the U.S. The pandemic devastated Florida's prisons. Hundreds of people inside them have died, including guards and the incarcerated. Like many other facilities, the prison struggled to get adequate cleaning supplies and protective gear. Change Comes Now offered to help. So we brought them in um, PPE suits, face shields, booties, thousands and thousands of gloves, hundreds of gallons of bleach, um, hundreds of gallons of hand sanitizer um, to try to keep the women inside safe. Change Comes Now had organized protests against prison abuses and conditions. Providing supplies was now an opportunity to work together. We changed the way that we... Um, contacted the prisons and just said, we, we understand that there is a problem with the pandemic in the institution, and what can we as a nonprofit do to help you? And that just changed everything. The help Change Comes Now provided during the pandemic opened the door at correctional facilities in Gadsden, Hernando, and Homestead. The group is now able to make other deliveries, including holiday bags with some small comforts, pink washcloths, candy canes, and eyeshadow palettes. Bennett Austin says being able to come on to the compounds is a huge step forward. It's about more than the holiday bag. She says it's about being a visible example of what's possible. I screwed up a lot in prison. I stayed in trouble. I lived in confinement. I was kicked off every compound in the state of Florida. And I came home and got my together. I came home and I made good decisions and I make right choices. When they see us walking on a compound, when they used to be our bunkie or we used to cut grass together, or we, we just know each other from prison, and they see us walking through prison in, like, regular clothes, and they know all the work that we're doing, and, they, and they, when they see us there, it pushes in a big, strong message of hope. Other volunteers are pushing something else into Florida's prisons. Books. The Gainesville Books to Prisoners program has existed on and off for a decade, and it was revived about a year ago. I called a volunteer, Milo Neelands, to hear more about it. Over the last year, we've sent books to over 600 prisoners, uh, totaling over 2,000 books. 
Neelan says they're always looking for donations, Spanish language and graphic novels especially. They also receive requests. We got a letter from a a book club inside a prison one time. Um, Six individuals wrote from within a book club and we had just gotten a donation of the entire Game of Thrones series. So we were able to send them the series to read together. Another group working to encourage reading is the Gainesville Bridge Literacy Program. It was created two years ago to address Alachua County's achievement gap between white and black students, the biggest in the state. The program pairs volunteers with children for just 10 minutes a day to work through a curriculum. Director Leah Gallione says she's seen participants make significant academic gains. She says one student, at risk of being held back, is now advancing to the next grade. Another, who is failing English, made it on the honor roll. Kids are, like, loving reading. Their parents are telling me they're picking up books and reading around the house, and it's starting to really come together for a lot of the kids. Galeon says the program has served about 100 students since its beginning. When the pandemic forced them to transition online, she says it was a benefit. I quickly realized, like, wow, like, this this is a win-win on every level because the kid is in their own environment where they're comfortable, that it's 10 minutes, the volunteer doesn't have to leave their home, which for many people is a big, like, um, is, is a big barrier. We can reach so many more kids this way. You don't need to be a literacy expert to volunteer. If you can read, you can teach this program. You know, I have middle schoolers tutoring other, like, lower elementary school students. So, to me, this is a way the community can get involved and really, really make a difference. Galeon's vision is to quadruple the program in the fall. She says the achievement gap can be closed. These kids are smart. There's nothing wrong with the kids. They just were not taught properly to read. And that wasn't their fault, right? We owe it to them as the community of Gainesville to teach them to read. And Kwanda Jaw also works to provide educational opportunities for Alachua County's young people. She's the executive director of the Cultural Arts Coalition. This year, she's worried about a growing problem. We had a real um, bad increase in youth violence here in Gainesville. Um, We've had children lose their lives uh, to gun violence. This summer in Gainesville, a shooting at a party left four wounded and one dead. Christopher Scott. He was 13. Three teenagers were charged in connection with the shooting. The tragedy prompted more community conversations around youth violence prevention. Jaw says she teamed up with city commission candidate Cynthia Chestnut to try to address the root of the problem. We felt like we needed to hear kids, hear from the kids, from our young people about what they uh, uh, knew about what was going on and what we could do about it. They held a meeting this summer with local youth. They were very much aware of the gangs in our community. They knew the different names of the gangs. They knew the colors that the gangs wore. They knew how the gangs uh, recruited and how they maintained people in it. 
uh, it was very interesting. And, and it, uh, adults weren't allowed to talk. We had to listen to the, to the young people. The kids said activities would help. Game nights and movie nights, getting outside. And they wanted something else, too. For adults to listen to them. Jaw says the county commission talked about putting more young people on their advisory committees, but she saw a problem in that. You know, that's uh, that's a beautiful thought, but adults don't even like to go to the advisory committee meetings. Uh, they're, they can get to be boring. I couldn't see that being, um, being the answer uh, to it. So they came up with a plan. So uh, Commissioner Chestnut... Chuck Chestnut and I talked about bringing the kids together to sit down and they decide what kinds of activities that they would like to see and how adults could help them to uh, realize these uh, activities. Jaw says they're planning the induction for a Youth Activities Advisory Council in February and hope to have a wide reach. And we do want to focus not just on Gainesville, but we want to focus on our outlying areas, too. Because Chestnut is currently in a runoff election, I also reached out to her opponent, Matt Howland. Howland says he's been working on youth services since 2012, when he founded Youth Combine as a nonprofit after-school fitness program. The council isn't the only organization with a big target date in February. A group called Created Gainesville, which seeks to end local sex trafficking, plans to open the area's first safe house for sexually exploited women. Nearly a decade ago, I volunteered with Created Gainesville, helping them to get off the ground. Opening a safe house was always the dream. Now, it's almost a reality. So the next four to six weeks is going to be really, really exciting over at Created. We're going to be painting walls and finishing up those renovations putting furniture together, and just making sure that every corner of this room um, really just is full of, you know, dignity and warmth, and that when women first walk into that door, um, they just can sense that it's home. Angaro says the women they serve have always said their number one need is shelter. And not just for, like, a temporary stay, but for an extended period of time. We get calls every week, sometimes every day, for survivors looking for a safe place to go. The opening will be a historic moment for North Central Florida. This safe home is is so significant to us because really there is nothing like it, um, not only in Alachua County, but for about 11 counties that surround Alachua County. Um, so not only are we going to be able to invite women home from our own community, but also neighboring communities. Florida ranks third in the country for human trafficking. But Angaro says there are only bed spaces available statewide for about 10 percent of survivors who need them. So our long term vision is that. We, will, we won't stop with just one home, but that we will eventually have multiple homes um, with even more beds available for women when they are ready. Angaro says the funds for the house came from a state grant and local donors. So proud of our community for 
um, really acknowledging the hard things that are hard and painful and uncomfortable and leaning into how we can collaborate together. In 2022, I'll continue to bring you stories like the ones you just heard, examining the inequities that exist in North Central Florida and the people working to change them. Thank you for listening. For Report for America at WUFT News, I'm Katie Heisen.